everybody. We are live here on Facebook again for Tales from the Heart with the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy with yours truly, Lisa Salberg. And my co-host for today's event is Dr. Martin Marin from Tufts Medical Center and Morristown Medical Center. Good morning, Dr. Marin. Good morning, Lisa. And always great to be here. And uh, also good, uh, good shout out to all the patients and family members tuning in. Um, Great to have you. Thanks for joining us. It is March 12th, 2021. Yep. We've been pandemicking for a year now. Yep. Um, before we dig into today's topic, which is going to be exercise in adult competitive athletes, a very specific topic. Um, just a quick shout out to the community on should HCM patients get vaccinated? And if so, is there any particular vaccine that they should or shouldn't get? They should get vaccinated and they should get whichever of the three they can get access to first. That's the deal. Yep. Thank you very much. Just like to make that point pretty clear as we get through this pandemic together, but I think we're almost on the other side. I'm yep. Pfizer times two and doing okay. Great. So uh, I want to encourage everybody to get vaccinated so we can absolutely get vaccinated. Okay. So that's our sideline on COVID. Today, we're going to dive into a topic that's covered in the guidelines. Things have changed a little bit. Um, practical application of recommendations for competitive athletes who are adults has kind of been this informed decision-making process, um, a little bit of informed consent almost, I would say, uh, in this process. So today, we're going to be digging into that. Do you want to talk about what subpopulation we're discussing and specify that a little bit more? I think we're going to, we're going to be focusing on adults today um, who are engaged in, 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 in athletic activities, recre recreational or more uh, physical activities and discuss, you know, kind of where we are with, um, you know, what, you know, what the recommendations are for that in, in those patients. Um, and how, you know, and maybe how do we deliver that information to patients um, so that they can make the best decision uh, that they can about really which level of activity they, they you know, that they should be doing. Um, and so I think that's going to be the primary focus of, of the conversation. So I want to be crystal clear that we are not speaking about children, so right. minors under the age of 18. We are not speaking about collegiate athletes. And we are not speaking about professional athletes. So th this is a lot of qualifiers in a podcast. <laughs> and, and I think just, and we're not just so people understand because, you know, the, the conversations are a little different with some of those other populations. It's all, it can be a little bit more of a, a complex and, and, and in some ways nuanced issues. So we're going to maybe address them in a separate uh, podcast for those reasons. Exactly. So Stay tuned for additional programming on the same topic. But today I, I've asked one of um, our shared people, Seth, to join us and tell us a little bit about his story. And I think we're gonna all find Seth kind of interesting here. So I am going to unpin uh, you and I am going to unpin me and I'm going to ask Seth to come on camera with us and I'm gonna pin him and I'm gonna remove me. And there we go, I'm playing like TV producer here. So welcome Seth and thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story today. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about when you first heard those words, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or in your case, idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis. Correct, yeah, I was back uh, 1995. I had just gotten married to my high school sweetheart. And um, my dad uh, had IHSS at the time and was under the care of a cardiologist who recommended that his children be screened. And I was screened every so often. Um, like I said, I was, I was newly married. I was building a enormous deck in the back of my house, extremely active. Um, I like to say I grew up in the street in front of my house. I played roller hockey, deck hockey, uh, extremely passionate about, about sports and activity. Um, but I was newly married, 
uh, it was New Year's. We went out to dinner. Uh, I had a few drinks and I got very symptomatic and talked to my parents and said, I think it's time I be evaluated again. And How I went. How old were you at this point? Um, I was 25, 25, 26, 26 years old. Um, went to my GP who sent me to the local cardiology group and I had an echo, went home, was going about my day and I got a call that there was a problem with my echo. That's all that I heard. Uh, the bottom fell out and my wife and I got up, went to the cardiologist's office and they explained that I had IHSS at the time, not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and that I had obstruction. And the cardiologist put me on a high dose of beta blocker, sent me home and told me to come back in a month for a follow-up. So um, I had the worst month, one of the worst months of my life being now in the middle of building a deck, a new homeowner. My wife was pregnant with our first child, um, super active guy laying on the couch on beta blockers sex drive out the window, um, went back to him a month later and he asked me how I felt. And I, felt, I said, I, I feel like garbage. I really feel terrible. And he put his hand on my shoulder and my wife was there and said, you have a beautiful wife. You're gonna have a child. I don't think you're coming to grips with your illness. I'd like to send you for a psychiatric analysis. And I started shaking and we walked out the door I walked to my general practitioner's office across the street and he um, referred me to what then was a, 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 a highly known heart hospital on Long Island. And uh, I went there and met my father's cardiologist who cut my meds a little bit, kept me on medicine. Um, and told me to stay hydrated and go live my life. And didn't talk to me about any restrictions, just sent me off on my way. So you went from and one extreme to the other? Back to the, back to the other extreme. I went, I finished my deck. Um, at the time I was uh, a goaltender playing uh, fairly high level local adult hockey, um, uh, A, B league around here, which is up, up where Marty is, it's a little different than it is down here on Long Island, but it was pretty competitive down here and, and um, I was very active. So I followed with him uh, for a few years until it was time for him to retire. And he retired and sent me um, to his partner who I saw and on initial intake with his partner, he looked at me and like the blood drained out of his face. And he said, you're a ticking time bomb. What are you doing? And why, you, why do you not have an ICD? If you were my son, I wouldn't let you leave the house. And- It's a different story, isn't it? <laughs> it quite, quite different. So again, from, um, from don't do anything. I wanna send you for a psychiatric analysis you're a ticking time bomb. Uh, that's when I sought out you at the HCMA. And I feel like that's when my care really started. Um, I remember that conversation very clearly. Um, the, some of the parts that I connect with people on are just shared dates. So 95 was a big year for you. 95 was a big year for me. We're about the same age. And um, I connected with that IHSS. I'm gonna, gonna ask Dr. Marin to jump in here for just some clarification for our listeners. Uh, what is IHSS with obstruction compared to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy? Lots of big words. Yeah, yeah, so, so let's clarify that. Um, and so IHSS is one of actually many different older terms that have been applied to this same disease, HCM. And uh, in the, if we go back in time, um, IHSS uh, was 
the the term to describe HCM um, because it was a term used to describe the most common feature initially emerging out of the original descriptions of the disease, which was outflow tract obstruction. So at that time, they didn't even know that there was a non-obstructive form of HCM. Okay, so they, for those reasons, um, came up with the term idiopathic, which just means they didn't know the cause at that time either. Hypertrophic, meaning thickness. Uh, uh, aortic just means to describe the area of the heart where the obstruction is occurring and stenosis is obstruction, uh, a term for obstruction. So that's how that term originally emerged to describe the most visible feature of HCM at that time. And what I mean is the 60s and 70s. And so IHSS was the, one of the first original terms. Of course, when more information became available over time and we began to appreciate that there can be the non-obstructive form of the disease, there was a consensus to change terms to, to HCM in general, as a, as a general, as the, as the overarching term uh, for the disease. Thank you for that. A, a number of our families will say, I don't have any HCM in my family but my grandmother had IHSS. I'm like, yeah, that's the same thing. Just different names are, our definitions evolved over time. Equivalent terms, just one is older. Right, perfect, thank you. So here we are, Seth, we have our first conversation and I say, I think you might benefit from meeting somebody who knows a little bit more about HCM and can help guide you in these decision makings. And it's not all good and it's not all bad. You're in the middle and let's help you figure that out. So you go up to Boston and you meet uh, Marty Marin. And uh, Marty, why don't you tell me a little bit from your perspective, I'm gonna unpin you so we can all kind of go into a gallery view here. Um, tell me a little bit about what you remember when Seth came in and we're having this conversation of what's going on. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think I, I first met Seth, um, and by the way, hi, Seth, um, uh, good to see you, of course. I think I've been seen. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, I think I first met Seth many years ago. Um, and I think when I first met him, he was with his dad, actually. I think it was, I think both came up together. Um, and I think, you know, at that time, we, you know, we had a, a, a number of aspects to the conversation at that time that were, you know, that, that I can recall that were really important. Um, the first was kind of diving a little bit deeper into the, the issue of, are you a ticking time bomb or not? Okay, and that's a term we often hear that attached to such situations that patients that come to us say that I was told I'm a ticking time bomb, um, which is you know a term I assume used to say you know that somebody's been concerned about that patient's risk of a life-threatening rhythm happening at some point due to HCM. So as we do, you know as always for, for our initial evaluations of patients, we just dive deep into the issue of, are, are, are you at increased risk for a life-threatening rhythm? Um, and there are a small group of HCM patients who in fact are at an increased risk, who for, those, for, for that reason would be potentially candidates deserving of protection against those life-threatening rhythms, which in HCM is not a drug, but a device. And, and that's the implant, of course, the implantable cardioverter defibrillator or ICD. And I'll just make just, ICD is, is, a, is, is a device that's similar to a pacemaker. The ICDs have pacemakers, but the ICD also has with it the ability to provide energy, shock energy to and abort those life-threatening rhythms to restore a patient back, in fact, to a normal rhythm if that occurs. So these are really powerful devices in, in the ability to really uh, essentially provide the opportunity for patients to have life-saving therapy with them at all times. And so the question always, the, you know, the question that we always try to answer is, is a patient a candidate for that or not? So let me stop there for a second. That was one of the initial sort of, I think, big discussions that we had. And then the other one um, that comes to my mind was, what can I do? You know, what, what can I do 
physically with this disease safely. And so those were the two areas I recall that we really got into with Seth. Seth, what are your recollections of that first? Um, that, that's pretty accurate. I remember um, going in and, and you reminded me that I went in with my dad, Dr. Marin, thank you. Um, and I remember just being so uncertain because of all the care I got down here and uh, finally ha having somebody, it was a very frank discussion uh, about my risks and what I could and couldn't do or what I should and shouldn't do. Um, you know, and we could talk about to be happy, my happiness and, and what level was acceptable. Uh, but I came out of that uh, consultation with Dr. Marin uh, very clear on what my steps were going forward. I wanna pause here for a second because people come at this question of competitive athletics from very different points of view, different sports, different HCM anatomies. There's a lot of variables here. Some people like to do a particular activity and it's something that brings them happiness. And then there are some people who truly define themselves by the culture of that sport, by the social network that they've built there, by a lifetime of friendships, partnerships, and just how you attack life. Um, with all due respect, Seth, I would le lean you on the side of pretty obsessed with hockey. Would that be correct? I, that would be extreme. That would be very correct. So yes. life without your hockey family, your hockey friends, participating at some level would emotionally have been incredibly difficult for you. Devastating. So you communicated that depth of passion for the sport to Dr. Marin in this conversation. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Yes. Marty, is that your recollection as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, um, I think that's exactly in line with how I remember it, for sure. So now we have a passionate guy who wants to play hockey, but there's something else going on with this ICD conversation. There's a high-risk feature identified, and Seth is recommended to get an ICD. So Seth, you're an athlete who needed an ICD. You wanna talk about how that felt for a minute? Um, it's hard to say how, how it felt. At the moment, uh, I remember walking into that consult consultation saying, I'm gonna to have to hang up my skates. And that was my world. Other than my wife and my family, hockey is, was my world, still is. Um, but, uh, yeah, when, when it was clear I needed the ICD, um, I knew I had to make changes and concessions to what I was doing. So I was kind of grappling with that a little bit, what I could do. This is about 2006. You're in your mid thirties. You consent to getting an ICD and it sits in your chest from 2006 to 2014 with little fanfare, correct? Yes, 2013. 13, oh, okay, we were off. 13, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's the week of Christmas. There is a very hotly contested game going on. Now you have moved from a goalie to a right. referee. Correct. At a very high level because you're intensely into hockey. Yeah. So you want to just, before we go into what happened in 2013, tell me how you transitioned from being a competitor to being a, an official. So after uh, that initial meeting with Dr. Marin and knowing that I had to have the ICD placed, uh, my wife said I should go into coaching. I have girls, I'm a dance dad. I, there was nothing I could do with dance to be involved with my children. Um, I didn't feel like coaching and I had uh, a high level of understanding for the game and some friends, some, some of my hockey friends recommended I move into officiating. And it was a happy medium for me because I felt that I could throttle my activity and not be as competitive uh, as I was when I was playing goalie. So that, that's how I came to be a referee. And not just um, a degree for like little kids hockey. This is no. junior varsity, varsity, collegiate level hockey. And you're out there with your ICD 
as the ref. Correct. Yeah. Your passion for hockey right there with you. Absolutely. It took me moving to refereeing took me and has still taken me to very high levels within the sport. So we're at this game, JV game. Yeah. Very tight game. We're in the last two minutes. There's a tie score. You're the referee. Where was your excitement amped physical level on a scale of one to 10? 11. Yeah. Uh, So the the full stands, playoff atmosphere, screaming, yelling. Um, I was adrenaline pumping, skating, goal line to goal line. Um, Goalie covered the puck. I skated behind the net, blew my whistle pointed to where the next face-off would be and the lights went out. And the next thing I knew, I woke up and there were six or eight people standing above me. Did you know what happened yet? I had no idea. How no long clue. did it take you to figure out that something related to your heart had just happened? Um, I felt, I thought that I had passed out. Um, in my years living with HCM, I've had those, um, picking up a hamper, the things getting fuzzy. Um, I've had those feelings my whole life. This was, um, the worst I've ever felt of that. And the lights went out. So when I woke up, people were yelling my name. I knew something happened. I thought I passed out. And they told me I passed out. And how long were you down on the ground? Um, I was laying on the ice, thankfully fully protected head to toe, helmet, pads, everything. So they were afraid I hit my head. Um, I would say I was unconscious about a minute and a half or two minutes. And you wake up and you get back on your skate. Of course, like any, like any hockey player, I get to my feet and I skate off the ice. And you get to the locker room and they decide this is not a day to go home. This is a day to go to the hospital. Yeah. So thankfully at um, our local high school games, we have EMTs on staff and uh, the EMT walked me to the back and I, um, full disclosure, everybody, the league, everybody knew of my heart issues. So I never kept that secret from anyone. Um, But they took me to the back. I got changed into my street clothes. And they said, we're not going to let you, you can't drive home. Somebody's going to drive you to the hospital. We want, we want you to get looked at. And um, typically my wife and I had a code uh, where whenever I got off the ice, I would text her that I was off the ice. And she knew and she can relax at home that I was off the ice safely. Uh, That night I called her. And she answered the phone and said, what's wrong? That's how she answered the phone. So when you get to the ER, what do they find in the data in your device? Uh, So they they did my intake, took me in. Everything was looking normal. And they had somebody from St. Jude come down and interrogate my device. And I was watching the young woman as she was interrogating it. And she looked shocked. And she turned to me and said, uh, you were in full-blown cardiac arrest and you were given therapy and, and that device saved your life. Do you remember what that moment felt like? Um, I think I got sick. <laughs> I think I, yeah, I think I got sick in that moment and needed uh, a pan or something. It was, it was pretty surreal. So your device goes off. You spend a couple of days in the hospital because you aspirated a little bit in those few minutes you went down, cleared out your lungs, went home. And Mm -hmm. what was the conversation with you and your wife about going back to referee? Um, Because that's secondary to your conversation with your doctors. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough conversation because my wife knows my passion and my love. And that um, there's a whole mental aspect there 
that she knows I, I have a stressful job. And that's my, that's my therapy. My hockey family is my therapy. So um, she was happy. I was protected. Obviously, we were, we were both happy. You know, now it's Christmas, a week before Christmas this happens. And we're with our, our families now and discussing this. I could have not been there. I could, you know, it could have been a, a, a holiday without me. Um, but we discussed it. And um, I was pretty adamant about getting back on the ice. And we then consulted. Marty, you get a call from Seth. So my ICD went off and I was playing soccer, I was playing hockey at the time. And what did that conversation sound like to you? Well, you know, you know, I'd say probably some of the toughest conversations for sure that we um, engage in uh, are ones like this, where we hear that patients have had adverse events um, like this, which was pretty profound. And, uh, you know, we're always, I think, initially shocked as well and um, always takes us back to um, in this case, uh, fortunately, Seth was protected, um, obviously, from um, a death because he had the device, which did shock him for a rhythm that had he not had the device would have caused him to die on the ice, um, particularly if he hadn't gotten resuscitated quickly. Um, so, you know, after the initial shock was the feeling of at least, you know, we, we made the right decisions together about the device and he's alive and we will have another day here to which we can make changes and modifications so that this doesn't happen again. And Seth will continue to live, uh, hopefully a totally normal life, uh, despite the fact that we've had a fairly profound adverse event related to HCM. So Seth, did you decide after your consultation with family and physicians um, to go back to hockey at all? And in what capacity? I did. Um, so I, when I got the ICD, I moved to refereeing, uh, like we discussed, and I, it took me to pretty high levels. Um, I decided to go back, but to scale back the games I was doing to, I, I want to say I always sought out the highest level of hockey I could do and pushed myself. And that night I pushed myself too far. So in returning, I said, okay, I'm no longer going to do these high level games. I no longer am going to skate goal line to goal line. Um, I'll be a linesman. I'll work in a different referee system where it's not as strenuous on me. And I could lag behind the play and I could put myself in an easier position um, without stressing myself. Marty, how'd you feel about that decision? Yeah, let me, if I can, yeah, let me just take this, maybe this moment then to just make a couple points, if that's okay, from the, you know, maybe from the medical and to help maybe kind of put a lot of what Seth's been saying into certain contexts. And again, Seth, thanks for you know, sharing the story. It's an unbelievable story. Um, but a couple points, you know, one is that, um, you know, historically, you know, there's been the observation that, you know, really intense physical activity um, in patients with HCM can lower the threshold for an abnormal rhythm to occur. Okay. And in support of that has been a lot of studies done um, on young people who have died on the athletic field and looking at those causes and, and, and what's emerged is that the most common cause for those heart-related deaths has been hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, at least in North America. And so we've known for a long time that there's been a connection between really intense physical activity and an increasing risk of a life-ending rhythm with HCM. I, I, and so a lot of the recommendations that have emerged from that have been related to the position from the medical community of doing the best that we can to keep HCM patients safe from a safety standpoint, okay? Um, and 
as part of that, I want to make the point that what the, the, the extreme is not true. And we hear the extreme all the time that with HCM, you need to sit in a corner and not do anything. Don't move, you know, don't even get off your couch. Um, and, and, and that is simply uh, just not true. Um, we have always supported the idea that mild to moderate levels of aerobic activity, you know, done usually at a recreational level to allow patients to have the opportunity to stay physically fit, both physically, of course, and mentally with that, uh, with their disease is, is not only safe, and this is no evidence that it's not safe, uh, but should be done, okay, encouraged. And there's been even more recent studies done to show that um, mild to moderate recreational level of activity in patients with HCM, adult patients with HCM, is both safe and can improve cardiovascular fitness. Okay. So that's always been something we have said is okay to do for almost all patients with HCM. I can't make a, a statement that every single patient, but almost all patients with HCM, that that's acceptable. Okay. Where the line has been drawn a little bit with respect to concern about risk is, is, is higher intensity level activity, organized competitive sports, where the conditions that patients are in, interfacing with are different than recreational level. And what I mean is electrolyte changes, hydration, adrenaline are different when it's a competitive environment. And we believe those are the factors that are important in promoting an abnormal, potentially life-threatening arrhythmia with intense, very intense, organized competitive sports. And so that's the ra that's been the rationale for you know, the recommendation that for most sports, competitive sports, patients with ACM not engage in that to stay safe. And I'll make one other point and then we'll open it up. One other quick point. Seth's story, you know, points out a really a number of, but one in particular important point. It's difficult to know sometimes exactly where the line is between mild to moderate recreational level activity and what's too much. And you know, you can imagine, and everybody listening can probably imagine that that line in the sand is very difficult, if not impossible to precisely define. Okay. So for example, with Seth, I had an honest conversation with him and I said, I think it's okay to go back to referee on the ice. You're in control of your activity. Uh, it's generally, you know, not particularly intense like it is if you were in the, in the game. Uh, it seems like an activity that would be okay to do with HCM. It involves a lot about your happiness. And so I thought that was reasonable. But then what happened here was that that mild to moderate recreational activity of refereeing became in a very quick time, very intense because of the game, the pressure, the number of circumstances. And so it changed. And, and perhaps that change of intensity there may have impacted a change in risk and then ultimately led to a abnormal rhythm and shock. And so that's why it's really hard and difficult sometimes to, to know precisely what is and what isn't okay physically, okay? Um, and I think Seth's story you know, speaks to those challenges that we have in that particular area in HCM. So I covered a lot of ground there. Let me stop there and, and we can open it back up. I'm trying to be respectful of Dr. Marin's time. He does have to leave in just a few minutes. So I want to kind of do rapid fire so we can get everything done. Um, so Seth, you've decided to go back. You're, you're competing in athletics again at a different level and in a higher role in a sense in the hierarchy of hockey. Um, so you've kept your social structure. You've kept your hockey family. You've kept active to the level that you're comfortable with today with the heart that you have today. We will disclose that you've gone on to have a myectomy and recovered from that as well. That's another podcast. We can get into that another day. <laughs> so that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But now you're active at a, at a pretty high level. You've got your ICD. Would you have done anything different 
in 2006? Um, would I, in having the ICD? Having the ICD and implanted? Continue to place competitive athletics at the level you were playing. With all clear hindsight, do you think you would have made any different decisions than what you did? Uh, other than pushing myself that night, I don't think I would have done anything different. Um, you know, we, we talked, and again, that's the whole other podcast about mental uh, aspects of it. Um, I'm an active guy. I love the sport. I, I took the necessary steps myself to remain involved in the game. That night, I would have let somebody else ref that game. I would have taken a different position on the ice if I could have, you know, with hindsight. Um, but having that device implanted was the best decision I ever made. I, Lisa, I've expressed this to you. Um, when I'm driving, every so often I reach over in my car and I pick it up. And this is the ICD that, that saved my life. And I look at it and I think like, that let me go home to my family. And when other people get in my car, I hand it to them. I say, see this, this saved my life, you know? Um, and uh, one uh, point I wanted to make, when I woke up on the ice, nobody had touched me yet. And my life was saved. Nobody had evaluated me. Nobody was running for an AED. And I, I had come back from cardiac arrest. So... So it's, it's quite, it's an inspiring story and it really does go to the new guidelines with this concept of shared decision-making. Shared decision-making sounds very easy. Doctor says this, you say that, and you say, I want to do X or Y. But understanding the implications of the decision from the patient's perspective is complicated. I know you are active with the HCMA message board and Facebook group, and you ask questions of your peers, you got feedback, you spoke to your doctors, you spoke to your family, and you made the best decision for you. It's not the right decision for somebody else, but it's the right decision for you. Marty, do you find that different people make different decisions under the same circumstances as Seth's situation? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. That's why we have shared decision-making because different patients will perceive you know, different levels of, for example, risk differently, what they will be willing to tolerate with respect to taking on a certain amount of risk of an abnormal rhythm and what they would be willing to tolerate with respect to the, you know, the strengths and limitations of the ICD too. So you've got, you know, you've got different ways of looking at both sides of this, 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 this medical decision-making. And because people look at it differently, you know, our job is to engage patients in full transparency with the data that we have available about what their risk may be and what the pros and cons of the treatment are and to do our best to individualize that decision-making so that, as you just said, the patients can make the best decision for them. Correct. I'm going to rapid fire a couple of questions for Dr. Sure. Marin. Um, is there a particular heart rate those with HCM should be targeting not going over when they're got HCM and an ICD or just HCM and exercise in general? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's a great question. We get asked that obviously all the time and I can understand, you know, you know, where that, you know, where that question of course comes from. Here's the answer. We don't have a precise threshold, you know, uh, that, that says you can't go above, I'm making this up. You can't go above 185 beats per minute because once you do that, your risk of an abnormal rhythm um, is increased twofold if you compared to if you kept your heart rate below that. We don't have that data. It doesn't exist. And it's different. It's probably, again, different for different people. What we focus more on is not heart rate threshold, but it's intensity of the physical activity. In other words, educating patients that it's more about how they approach the intensity of the activity rather than a specific heart rate. So again, avoiding burst exertion, keeping the activity at a mild to moderate level. And the way we gauge that, you know, the way I like to gauge it is a peak exercise. Patients in our view should still be able to have a full conversation without straining to complete words or sentences. And that gives us, we believe, a good cushion of safety 
with respect to the intensity. And patients begin and go with that level as long as they want, staying well hydrated, and then a nice cool down. So that's our focus. It's about keeping the intensity where it should be rather than focusing on a heart rate number. Thank you. One other question before we're going to let you go, and I'm going to try to keep you within a few minutes of your end time. Um, Cindy's writing on Facebook that she has HCM and an ICD for VT and F. BF. Um, I'm assuming that those are her risks, not necessarily that she's experienced them. She doesn't tolerate beta blockers well, and she takes verapamil and has not been shocked, quote, yet, but has had several ATP therapies. So we'll explain that in a second. Um, she's asking, how do I surrender to meds before I know how bad a shock will, shock will affect me? Um, I think what she's really trying to manage here is how does she try to keep herself out of trouble with medication and stay active simultaneously and not have shocks? Yeah. I think this is a very detailed question that she may have to speak to her specific individual healthcare provider on, but can you give some general guidance on med management and device? Yeah, let me give some broad strokes here that could still be helpful, but agree. Obviously, it's it's a conversation that ultimately needs to ha- be had with 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 the with the patient's provider. But here's the broad principle: that he, the actual truth is that neither beta blocker or calcium channel blockers have ever really been shown to decrease the chance of a life-threatening rhythm in HCM, or in this case, an appropriate shock. Okay. Theoretically, they may in some patients help mitigate that, but we don't actually have the evidence to say that they do for sure, okay? If we did, then we would be putting patients solely on beta blockers and not putting ICDs in them. Right. Okay, so with that said then, again, you have to individualize. And then with that said then, what we generally, you know, what we generally say is that if a patient is having side effects related to beta blocker or calcium channel blocker that are frustrating and impacting their quality of life, that it may be reasonable to come off that, those meds, as long as they have the ICD, because we don't want patients to suffer from side effects in it with drugs that have no clear benefit in decreasing an appropriate shock. That, that's the general gist or risk benefit ratio that's going on. One other item that we talk about a lot in HCM is hydration. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how dehydration can just make it more difficult for the heart to do its job? Yeah, I think, you know, dehydration probably comes into play in two ways. If you're dehydrated and you have obstruction, you know, you're more likely to maybe be symptomatic, um, but your gradients would be higher during exercise if you're dehydrated. And, you know, we want to try to not get gradients higher if we can avoid it, you know, one and two. Of course, if you're dehydrated, you're more susceptible to electrolyte shifts and the imbalance there. And, and, and that's, that can you know, be a factor sometimes in, in, again, decreasing potentially the threshold for your heart to initiate an abnormal life-threatening rhythm. So that's why we really, you know, we really stress you know, the importance of keeping hydrated even, even during the winter because you lose insensible losses. And so you really got to keep up with that no matter what the season is, but particularly in the summer. Absolutely. Seth, do you have any parting thoughts to your fellow weekend warrior competitive athletes who are adults when faced with making a decision to sit it out or to dance, as the song says? Moderation. Moderation. Um, Yeah. I didn't, I showed no moderation and almost paid the price for it. And Seth, you raised a good point when you were just talking before too, that I think is, is worth emphasizing. I think when you went back and you were asked sort of what you could change, one, one, one word you used, which I think is important, is, is, is you would have modified you know, that scenario if you could go back and do it again by maybe taking yourself out of that situation because it was becoming too intense. You know, And so yes. that's an important point. Modification is really an important point to realize. If if you're a weekend warrior and you see yourself getting into a situation that appears to be coming too intense, stop, you know, change that up. Yeah. And if, if I can, that situation for me, uh, it, it pulled me. Right. I exactly. put my, I put myself in that situation 
um, re- knowing, but uh, the reality was that it pulled me to that peak performance. The right. crowd, the game, right. the right. all of those details, even though it was a call it a weekend warrior type of thing, it meant everything to everybody in the stands and on the ice. And I pushed myself right. further than I should have. And that's one reason that we are really even more concerned about organized competitive sports because the, the, the getting pushed in and is even stronger if you're participating in a competitive sport because, of course, there's the pressure to perform. And um, with your teammates, the crowd, et cetera, it's even harder to, to mitigate or you know, modify in an organized competitive environment for those reasons, too. So those are all really good points to keep in mind. Seth, I think you have really highlighted a very complicated issue. Marty, thank you for giving the balance of the medical perspective with a real life experience of an adult competitive athlete diagnosed with HCM at high risk for sudden death, opting to modify his activity and still hitting the, the threshold of having his ICD go off, save his life, and then return to a different level of moderation. Life with HCM doesn't have to mean sitting on the couch. That's right. Modification, conversation, realistic expectations. Nobody, but nobody expects a cardiac arrest to happen when a cardiac arrest actually happens. It's always surprising. So you can't plan for it. So you have to think about moderation and planning in advance so you can avoid those situations as best as possible. That's right. Any parting comments before you run away and go play doctor? <laughs> no, I think you just said it very well. It's about modification. It's about understanding where the limits are. You know, it's about incorporating that kind of thought process into what you're doing physically. It does not mean sitting on a couch and not doing anything. We do not want to trade one disease for another. That has never been part of the, the narrative in this disease. It's more about thoughtful understanding of where the limits lie for us to stay safe. That's exactly right. And people can have a great balance with living with HCM, but still staying active and enjoying the benefits of that physically and mentally with this disease. That's always our goal. Seth, any parting thoughts? Um, no, I, I uh, well, yes. I, um, I thought that HCM and the ICD would lower my involvement in hockey and it's only increased it. Um, I'm the referee in chief of the local high school hockey league. I am on the USA hockey training staff uh, and all these things I can do with HCM. And uh, I modified to where I'm, I'm instructing new referees now and uh, much more involved than ever before. So mentally I am extremely fulfilled in my hockey uh, life. Well, I, I'm thrilled that you got to play that balance. As you can see, Dr. Marin had to leave the building. He has uh, another meeting and patients to see, and he, he was supposed to leave five minutes ago, but we kept him. So sorry about that. Uh, but Seth, thank you for sharing your story today. Your information is inspirational, thought-provoking, and really elucidates the tricky balancing act that patients with HCM have to play every day and how we can navigate, make decisions, and then continue to live our lives. Absolutely. So thanks. Thanks for for having me. It was fabulous. And we might have you back to jump into the, and then he needed a myectomy. (laughs) Stay tuned. Okay. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for everybody watching on Facebook or listening on our podcast through either Podbean or through Spotify or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to take a moment to thank some of our sponsors, specifically to Bristol-Myers Squibb Myocardia and to Cytokinetics and NBTA for their support of this and other programming the HCMA is able to bring you. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCMWarriors. That's the number 4HCMWarriors.
Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today. 